1: You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner.
2: Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner. Today, we're continuing our month-long series speaking with National Geographic Explorers. So far this month, we've explored the freshwater ecosystems of the world with Sandra Postel, journeyed into the desert with Jason DeLeon, and now we're going to virtually explore a different type of landscape, and that's the ocean. So here to tell us about the work he's doing with technology and ocean conservation is Shaw Selby. Shaw, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So I'd like to give our listeners a little bit more background on you, Shaw, before we dive deeper into your work. Sorry, no pun intended. Um, Shaw Selby is an engineer and systems architect who works on propulsion systems for satellites and other unmanned spacecraft for Boeing. He has degrees from UC Riverside, the University of Southern California, and Stanford University. Since 2009, Shaw has worked as a conservation technologist and technology expert working to identify and implement innovative approaches to ocean conservation. He served as a technology expert for a number of nonprofits, and he also serves as the regional representative for Engineers Without Borders, leading all the university and professional chapters of the organization in Southern California. Thanks so much for being with us today. So the focus of our show today is Shaw's ocean conservation work, which centers around a project called FishNet, FishNet is a platform approach to harnessing technology to detect and track illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing worldwide. So, Shah, I have to admit that you know illegal fishing is not one of the top activities that comes to most people's minds when you think about environmental threats. You know, what got you interested in this issue?
3: Well, um, what really drove uh, my interest is, is my love for the oceans. I've, I've always been a big scuba diver. Um, and and always been inspired by you know the likes of Jack Cousteau and, and Sylvia Earle. Um, but it, I I really got involved when I started to understand um, that illegal fishing really is one of the the greatest threats that we have to our planet, um, and uh, and specifically our oceans, which you know covers seventy percent of of this planet. Um, so people typically call it illegal fishing or IUU fishing. Um, or pirate fishing, but, but really essentially what it is, is it's poaching. It's poaching by these, you know, illegal crime syndicates. It's, this is a big business. Um,
2: how big of an industry is fishing and also illegal fishing? Uh,
3: so fishing overall is, is pretty huge. It, it brings in about, um, 150 million tons of seafood a year. And so that, that equates to about $85 billion annually. Um, and And illegal fishing is is uh, said to be a, a significant portion of that. There's some estimates that put it as much as uh, as uh, twenty three billion dollars a year um that's caught illegally um, but but fishing overall is is very significant to our to our planet. over a, a billion of our um population rely on fish as their their primary source of of protein.
2: Wow. So what kind of impact does illegal fishing have both on people and also on the natural environment?
3: Well, uh, illegal fishing can can actually impact, if you look at coastal communities, for example, mm-hmm. um, pretty strongly. Uh, there's, there's a lot of parts of this world where where the, uh, the communities and the villages along the coast rely almost exclusively on the ocean as their source of income and, uh, and food source. And so when illegal fishing comes into that, you can have uh, quite a substantial um, uh, damage done to, to the community there. Um, I think one of the most uh, kind of apt examples of that is what's happened off the coast of Somalia. Um, a lot of those people who are now, uh, pirates and taking over uh, commercial shipping vessels—they were once fishermen, and uh, mm. and ali- illegal fishing and, and uh, dumping of pollutants off the coast of their waters are really what drove them to uh, to be pirates in the first place.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand that they're not pirates because you know they're inspired by Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever. They want to live a fast life. It's really that their livelihood has been taken away.
3: Yeah, and w- one of the m- the major issues that that illegal fishing um has on our on our ability to protect our oceans is that it's the major driver in overfishing. And so we know that that overfishing is is a significant problem um in the world today. Uh the majority of our commercial fish stocks are overexploited or they're or they're at risk of being overexploited, and uh, and much of much of the catch that we do, om, in almost two thirds in some places, is is thrown overboard as bycatch. Um, so, if we don't have a good idea of what is going on in our oceans, because much of the fishing is being done illegally, then it, it's hard for us to enact policies and ways to better protect protect those oceans.
2: Right, and that's why the work you're doing is so important. So, let me just reiterate some of the numbers, um, Shaw, that you gave us. Fishing is about an $85 billion industry worldwide, about a billion. Um, of the people on the planet, out of about 7 billion I think we're at right now, rely on fish for their main source of protein. So that's a huge portion of our population. And as much as $23 billion of fishing uh, is illegal in some way, um, and illegal fishing is one of the main contributors to overfishing that's threatening our fish planet uh, population, sorry, worldwide. Um, so let's start talking about how um, FishNet, your project, works and how it's shaking up the current system, you know, of monitoring and data sharing on this issue. So, Shaw, right now, how do we monitor the oceans for illegal fishing?
3: Um, so, right now, what we do is it's, we basically use technologies that are decades old. We have mm. a very uh, big reliance on um, the wealthiest militaries. So, we fly, uh, you know, the U.S. and, and Australia will fly um, military planes over much of the oceans and try and gather data. Um, And then we we have ways that we, once we do gather that data or or any other kind of information that can be related to fisheries, we manage them kind of in regional methods. And a lot of times, a lot of those systems were developed over the past couple of decades. Um, None of them talk to each other. And all that information, it's all very disjointed.
2: Hmm, Interesting. So it sounds like, you know, you mentioned some of the wealthiest militaries have responsibility for a lot of the monitoring and surveillance efforts. And it seems like some of those countries may not be the same countries where large portions of their population depend on the oceans for protein. So there's kind of a disparity there. Would you agree?
3: Yeah, there, there's definitely a disparity there. Now, the, there are ways that, that a lot of, um, of these militaries will try and help out some of those smaller nations. So mm-hmm. in in much of the South Pacific or if you look even in the Caribbean, the U.S. will donate um, uh, military uh, boats to those countries in, in in order for them to do their own patrols and their own enforcement in their waters. Um, now, a, a big problem with having a big, expensive Coast Guard vessel is, is uh, a lot of times it's… it's um, pretty costly to maintain it and to fuel it so so in a lot of those countries, you end up seeing these vessels uh, basically staying at port most of the time
2: interesting. um so you mentioned that a lot of the data collecting systems don't really talk to each other. there's no commu- communication between systems worldwide. Could you give an example of a situation where a more complete system of monitoring and data sharing can make an impact?
3: I'm um, um, sure. So, a lot of the ways that we kind of manage our our big ocean fisheries is through the use of uh, regional fisheries uh, management organizations. And so, a lot of these organizations are focused on on one specific uh, species, like take tuna for example, mm-hmm. um, and and they're really looking at one region of the ocean. And and usually these these organizations are made up of a number of different countries uh, working together. Now, now each one of these groups typically have created their own methods of managing the information that they gather, catch information, illegal phishing information, and they'll develop it independently um, based on whatever kind of software they want to use or 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 even if they want to just use paper forms. Um, now, if you would be able to create a system that could take all the information that all these different organizations wanted to collect and then shared it in a single database, then it'd be a lot easier to tell what's going on across that water, across those oceans, because you can look at the, the data that's being in, independently collected from each one of those organizations. Interesting. Um, and so, so we, I'm, we, we, sorry, have the te- we have the technology to do that today, and this is something that, that we can do now. It's just, you know, we, that, those technological capabilities have not yet reached um, the management of, of ocean data.
2: Interesting. Well, it, so- it definitely sounds like a massive organizational effort To put this together. And I'm trying to think of an example that some of our listeners may be familiar with um, to draw a parallel. And what's coming to mind is Interpol, um, the system of policing in Europe where data from different countries gets stored in a central database that can help. Uh, authorities in all the different countries catch criminals is that would you say that's like an okay comparison for people to think about
3: yeah I, i think that would be an okay comparison and there's actually work right now that interpol has been doing with with some organizations like um like the pew environment group to try and figure out what this would look like for fisheries
2: interesting can you say a little bit more about that
3: um, yeah, I, I know that they're, they're, they're in the midst of developing a system. There's been some um, kind of news that came out about it, but, but the details behind the system I'm not entirely sure about.
2: Okay, so let's talk a little bit more um, about the system that you've envisioned with Fishnet. And you've described this as not just one technological solution, but as a technology ecosystem. Um, can you explain what you mean by that?
3: Yeah. So I consider Fishnet as an ecosystem because it's really more of a framework that we need to work towards in in how to solve this issue. Um, Unfortunately, there's not a single miracle technology that can solve this all. We don't have a a silver bullet that can catch all illegal fishermen. So we really need to kind of look at this at the system level and understand what needs to change. So basically... um, what it is, is we need to improve two areas. One is we have to get better at knowing what's going on in our oceans. So I consider that observation technology. Mm-hmm. And two being is we have to be better with what we do with that data. So it's, it's really that simple. So that's the reason why I consider it an ecosystem is because there's multiple platforms that can help us with number one, the observation technology. And there's different approaches that can help us with number two, which is what we do with that information.
2: Okay. I'm just going to reiterate what you've said, that there's there's two main ways um, to approach the issue. And one is to get better at observation technology, monitoring technologies. Um, and the second is needing to be more effective with what we do with that data. Um, thank you very much. Um, so what are some of the various um, monitoring technologies that you're working on developing?
3: So some of the stuff that I'm I'm looking at is I'm trying to take uh, a lot of this, this technological process we've, progress we've had in, in recent years and and turn it to the ocean. So areas where I've seen other technologies being used uh, to help issues that weren't directly tied to the oceans, I'm trying to bring them over. So one of those is um, the use of, of low-cost uh, UAVs or drone aircraft. Um, another is um, how you can use unmanned vessels, both those being unmanned boats and uh, and submersibles as well. Um, a third is uh, satellite imagery. How can you incorporate satellite imagery into the observation of these kinds of things? And um, and open source sensors, low cost sensors. And, and finally, um, what can you do about bringing in more input from the public? So crowdsourcing and, and methods like
2: that. Interesting. Yeah. And crowdsourcing is definitely something um, that we're going to get to talk about. In a later segment, but just really quickly, we only have about 30 seconds before the break. Um, You know, you mentioned unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, and a lot of people perceive drones as these scary big brother type of aircraft that are essentially just used for spying. But what are some of the possibilities for drones in science and conservation? You know, how can you turn the public's perception of them sort of?
3: Well, yeah, and that's part of my, my um, intent behind this whole thing is drones are, drones are a general purpose technology, which they're much like a computer. You can use them for good and you can use them for bad. Um, and so the intent behind using uh, drones for conservation is to show that a lot of the things we use uh, regular aircraft for in terms of conservation can be just as easily done using a drone in, in a method that's more safe. Um, And more frequent than the way that we can usually do it under uh, the funding that we get for manned aircraft.
2: Cool. So that's a really interesting idea I'm taking from your work is that we can translate technologies from industries or sectors that, we, that maybe they emerge from or that we typically think of them being, belonging to and we can um, take them into other areas. Um, thank you, Shah. So it's actually time for our first break. Um, don't go away. We'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and my guest today, Shaw Selby.
0: Comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you
1: want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to Leader at NeboCompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
2: Hi, and welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Rachel Wold, and I'm guest hosting today's show for Kate Ebner. My guest is Shaw Selby. He's a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, a systems propulsion engineer with Boeing, and he's also a leading technology innovator on the issue of ocean conservation. And I'm speaking with him today about his project called FishNet, which is developing methods to monitor and share data on illegal fishing worldwide uh, using all of the technology innovation available to us in the 21st century. And in the last segment, uh, Shaw, you and I were just getting started talking about some of the various observation or monitoring technologies you're developing, um, and some of those were unmanned boats, unmanned aerial vehicle or vehicles also known as drones, satellite technology, um, and I, I'm not sure if you mentioned this one, but I, I know I've heard you talk before about hydrophones. Can you explain how those work?
3: Yeah, hydrophones are are um, basically underwater microphones, um, and they're actually, you know, from... Uh, Ocean acoustic standpoint they 're very good sensors and in, in that they if you, if you use the right hydrophones in the right situation, you can really pinpoint where something is happening in the ocean they've There's even been studies using um, cabled hydrophones that they've they 've been able to listen to the signature that comes off from uh, the noise that a vessel is making and be able to tell you know not only what kind of um, engine is powering that vessel but what kind of prop. Propeller they're using wow. and what kind of what That's kind of fishing equi- equipment even so
2: amazingly specific
3: yeah it's it's actually a pretty pretty interesting technology and and right now it's used pretty extensively in the scientific world um, it's even used in certain ways for monitoring surveillance on the military side um, but I think that there's a there's a a benefit in using that kind of technology for uh, marine protected areas as well, because say you have an area that's completely close to fishing where you don't really want anyone to venture inside because of the sensitivity of the habitat or something inside there. Well, that's, that's something where a a hydrophone could act as, as a, a trip wire or a a trip sensor. So if a a boat were to come into that segment, then you would get immediate notification that someone's come through um, and uh, And really help to better kind of protect that area
2: interesting so the, are there um, are there any authorities, say the Coast Guard or the local police, who are actually using these in communities that you know of
3: there so there are um, hydrophones that are being used um, um, in the in the surveillance side for sure um, there there's an interesting uh, project that NOAA is involved with um, off the coast of. Of Boston, where they're using buoys that have hydrophones equipped to them uh, to listen for uh, right whale activity. Um, The reason there is there's a marine protected area off the coast right there. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a that's a very important whale habitat. Um, But that area is also one of the most uh, uh, busy shipping lanes and and shipping traffic areas uh, in the world. So they really need. What they use these hydrophones for is to listen listen to activity, and if they do hear whale activity in the region, then they'll send out a, a notification that boats need to to slow down and be more careful about where they go, so that they don't harm this kind of protected species.
2: Interesting. So there's such a variety of technologies that you know you have um, well it doesn't sound like you've, you know, designed these all yourself. Do you rely very much on, you know, open source platforms to get your inspiration Just think like how could I apply this to help marine areas in the ocean? Like take us inside your process.
3: Sure. Yeah, so so I, you know, this first started back at Stanford and and, you know, I was a I'm a systems engineer and systems architect as you said by training. Majority of my career was spent in the spacecraft industry. So, in the spacecraft industry, you're focused on on Designing very complicated systems that can't be maintained. They have to go out into one of the most harsh environments that you can even imagine, Mm -hmm. and work and work perfectly. So there's quite a bit of design constraints that go into that. And so when I came into looking at this issue at Stanford, um, I I started to understand the problem more. Why illegal fishing is a problem, um, the types of areas and the types of fishing that it happens in, and um, and the and the limitations associated with all that and all that kind of. It, it reminded me of this design process that I go through with these space systems. And so mm-hmm. I started to see engineering solutions in in some of the gaps when I was looking, um, looking in this area and, and the deeper I looked, the more kind of technology based, um, um, opportunities that I saw there. Uh, so, so I really looked at this and I, and, and I looked at it in with three main th- things, one, I, I wanted to, to see better, you know, what were the requirements? What did we want to do here? Um, and then, what are our capabilities? So, as you mentioned earlier, what, what kind of technologies do we have out there um, in other areas and in other industries that could come and be used in the oceans to better help uh, what we're doing there? And then, the, the final was, was feasibility and cost. You know, is does this make sense for this um, for this issue?
2: Cool, um, well, that's really interesting. So, the ocean actually reminded you of space. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bit more accessible, right? Or maybe not. mean not parts of it of the ocean.
3: Well, some of some of the most pristine parts of the ocean are are very very inaccessible, and it's a very difficult uh, design and engineering challenge to to deal with these kinds of things. And and so it, it really gets easy to think outside of the box um, um, with what kinds of things can help.
2: Interesting. So, do you design all of the materials and the technology? You know that you've used for fishnet. Yourself, like, and how do you do it on a computer, or do you have access to a lab? Like, how do you make these things?
3: So, I, I've designed certain parts of it. Um, my rec- my recent efforts have been more in what are the strategic developments that need to take place to make this whole concept uh, come to life. So, I've mm. I've done uh, development in certain parts, and and those are with with uh, specific projects like the Soar Ocean project, which is the which is the uh, low-cost drones and how you can use those for ocean conservation. Mm -hmm. Um, There's MPA Guardian, and so that was a way that we can expand our eyes in the water through crowdsourcing. And then further, the next iteration is how that data would be folded into the the work that um, enforcement or patrols would end up doing, so how we get smarter about um, about the way we patrol, um, and then you know things like uh, Ultra VMS, which is a, a low cost way to bring vessel monitoring systems to developing communities, because right now the the options out there are are economically prohibitive. Um, so I, I, I develop small pieces of this because I feel like these are little areas where. Um, proof of concept, or, or or a technology needs to be created to to help move the entire concept um, as a as an ecosystem or a, a technology roadmap forward. But um, you did mention open source, so I did want to say something. I'm I'm a strong strong believer in the in open source as as a development um, for a lot of these technologies. So I try to leverage all the great work that's done with the. Open source community in in those types of things that I'm working on, um, and and use the passion of the people that are there uh, developing some of these these technologies. When you give them a solution, they get very excited about it, and you can kind of work together and collaborate on on something.
2: Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of energy in the open source community. Could you just um, d- uh, define for our listeners like what does open source mean? It's kind of a buzzword, but I, I'm I have a hunch that maybe not everybody knows what it means.
3: Yeah, um so open source is is a it's a development um uh methodology basically where a lot of the engineering and design and development that you end up doing on a on a piece of hardware or software or, or platform you share it with a general open community. So basically mm-hmm. um all if if you look at it as a piece of software, a piece of software is developed under an open source license. Then anyone who were to fix bugs in that software or produce, you know, added capabilities to that software would share that, you know, their changes with the greater open source community. And then everybody's projects that are built off that software become better just because of that.
2: Cool. So it's kind of like, um, you know, for a lay woman like myself, like putting your recipe for the best strawberry rhubarb pie ever up on the internet. And if somebody comes up with a way to make the crust, even better, they would share that with everyone and everybody's work could improve.
3: Exactly, yeah. You know, and, and it's it, the real benefit is it allows us to do this kind of technology development and this prototyping that we had traditionally done within kind of proprietary big company mindset. It allows us to do it much faster and much more cheaply uh, than we used to be able to do it. So, just an example that I've talked about before is: is um, if you think about being an inventor entrepreneur decades ago, mm-hmm. uh, really what you needed was a lot of money to be able to have access to a factory, have access to engineers that can design the, the the you know specific components that you had in mind for the part, and then you have to get a lot of money to basically manufacture it. And now we're living in this in this time where. Um, open source and this maker maker movement has allowed us to be able to basically, essentially, sit on our couch, design something on our own computer, you know, three D print it somewhere to see what the prototype would look like, and then send that file off to a, a factory in China to be manufactured, all without even leaving leaving your your couch.
2: Wow, so, that's that's amazing. Is yeah, that what you do? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I, I do work on the couch sometimes. <laughs>
2: Interesting. You know, it seems like with the ubiquity of the internet over the last 15 years or so, um, do you think that's changed the way we think about ownership of technology and ownership over ideas?
3: I definitely think it's changed. I I think that this kind of free-flowing access to information is changing um, not only our public dialogue, but if you look at the way that we deal with uh, patents and, and, and technology, this whole open source movement and a lot of this, this free exchange is really kind of challenging the way we've done things before. Um, and then and we, we have, uh, where, whereas before you would expect to get patents and to own that intellectual property to be able to become successful and sell a product. Well, now we're seeing people are becoming su- successful and selling even more capable projects using open source platforms um, and sharing a lot of that information.
2: Wow, thank you. That's really interesting. And I can see that this is definitely a major shift in the science and technology field. And and I think you can see it echoing in in all parts of society as the internet affects us. Um, So we have just about another 90 seconds left. But I want to ask, you've mentioned MPA, you've mentioned Soar Ocean, I think. Who have been your partners in this process with FishNet?
3: Uh, so originally, you know, this was started at Stanford, and so I worked very closely with the uh, Center for Ocean Solutions, which is which is based out of Stanford and, and Monterey Bay. Um, over the last couple years, I've worked with a number of nonprofits um, on on specific projects, but a, a lot of this stuff is is primarily driven by myself um, and under my own my own efforts. So specifically, um, MPA Guardian was Soar Ocean is is under some grant money from. Um, National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions, and so that they're a partner in that one. And there's a lot of or, other organizations looking on on getting involved there. But a lot of times, these ideas, when I first initially get them, I, I start chasing out um, them by myself, seeing if I can, uh, you know, get something working, get a prototype or a concept together, um, and then I'll go and I'll talk to uh, talk to some of the co- partners in the conservation world to see uh, see if they're interested.
2: Great. Well, this has been a really fascinating couple of minutes. I love getting to talk to you about the design process and uh, open source movement. Um, But we're actually moving into another break. Um, This is Rachel Wold. I'm in for Kate Ebner today. And my guest is Shaw Selby. He's a National Geographic Emerging Explorer uh, and the creator of Fishnet. And we will be right back in a moment.
0: When it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
1: do you want to take your organization to the next level the nebo company develops leaders teams and organizations to achieve their highest potential we provide executive and team coaching leadership courses, mentor programs and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to
1: Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to VisionaryLeader at NeboCompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
2: Hello, and thank you for joining us today on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. If you like the show and you'd like to find out more about our guests, uh, read our episode recaps and get special access to additional resources, sign up for our Visionary Leader newsletter at nebocompany.com. I'm Rachel Wold, I'm guest hosting today's show for Kate Ebner, and today National Geographic Emerging Explorer Shaw Selby and I are discussing his groundbreaking work to developing new technologies to improve our ocean conservation efforts, specifically to curb the problem of illegal fishing. Um, and in the last segment, we got to start talking about some of the greater implications, not only of your work, but of the way you work, you know, using open source technology, um, And Fishnet collects, shares, and manages information. I know one of the goals is to get more information to the people who need it more efficiently. Uh, And I think that's a really cool example of how modern technology, including the Internet, can help people and our planet benefit from sharing information. And what I'm really struck by is is, you know, how globalization, this increasing interconnectedness can create or magnify problems worldwide. But at the same time, it seems like we can use connectedness to solve them. Um, And a great example of that is the information sharing system that you hope to create. So could you talk a little bit more about how this um, data sharing system might work?
3: Um, Yeah. So, so, basically the, the 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 amount of information we have about what's actually happening um on our waters is 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 pretty sad um we we essentially know nothing about what what's happening out there um uh, with the exception of small little patrol areas that that as i mentioned before militaries or other entities will will um travel down um so so i you know, I really wanted to change that, and I really thought that there was other ways that that we can kind of pull pull some information together and, and better characterize that. One of the major reasons why we want to do that is is because if you don't know what's going on out there, it's it's tough for you to to you know put together a plan on how you're going to protect the oceans or manage fisheries or understand you know you know how many of the bluefin tuna are remaining. Um, and so the first thing we had to do is really get a better idea of what's happening out there. Um, And so, so my hope is, is that you can create these systems that, uh, that will better demonstrate that using technology. So uh, one thing that we've seen a lot of recently is how you can um, visualize data on a map a lot more Mm -hmm. effectively and, Mm -hmm. and understand what problem areas are as well. Um, I also think that there needs to be more data sources, uh, uh, contributing to those databases. And so that's where something like crowdsourcing would come into play.
2: Right. So I know that you're working on an app that will let anybody with a smartphone contribute to the cause um, of monitoring illicit fishing activities, protecting protected areas. Um, so can you talk about the kinds of opportunity that crowdsourcing brings to environmental problems?
3: Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's always been ways. If you were to be out on the water and in a protected area or a sensitive area, and you see someone doing something they're not supposed to do, there's always been ways that you can contact the authorities. You can call a, num- a, a, a number and basically tell um, whatever regulatory agency that you saw something happening there that was bad. And people do that. There's there's been a, a tip line called Cal Tip uh, off the coast of California that's mm-hmm. been running running for decades now um, for that specific kind of thing. But you know we 're all now walking around with these incredibly sophisticated computers in our pockets mm-hmm. uh, with with smartphones, and we have these you know added capabilities in terms of things that we can do with them and so it was that that inspired me to think you know let 's take that tip line approach and let 's take it to the next level um, they they're, uh, so and so what I did was I created MPA Guardian, which basically is a, is an app that allows people, if they are to be out on the water or um, you know walking along the beach, if they see something happening, they can snap a picture or um, or just anonymously put in a, a report of what they see going on, and, and that in that report will have. GPS information connected to it. So you'll know where it's happening you know, from a location standpoint. And, um, and that helps to build that better information system that I was talking about before, a better understanding of what's happening out on the waters.
2: Interesting. So uh, one question I have about this app is, do people know which areas generally are supposed to be protected? Like, is there great signage from the land? Like, how are people supposed to know the, that what they see, you know, isn't right?
3: Yeah, there, so, so the signage does need to get better. There, there, there are signs telling you that you're in a protected area, and, mm-hmm. but, but um, there's other ways you can do that, especially like technology-based ways. There's something that's called geofencing, which basically means that if you have a location-aware system, like a smartphone, um, and, and the app is downloaded, you enter an area that's uh, a marine-protected area. The app will send you a, a notice saying, "Hey, you've entered this marine protected area," um, or something along those lines, right? So, th- there's technological ways to get around that that hurdle.
2: That's fantastic. Um, so, MPA Guardian app is that currently available in the, you know, the iPhone or the Android app store?
3: Yeah, it's it's available right now in the iOS app store, so the Apple. Um, iphone app store um, for both the iphone and the ipad um, right now it's it's finishing up development in the for the android version um, and those those will be available as well
2: awesome and does it work just in california where you live or does it work in other places
3: well right now it's it's um, it's specifically targeted for California, but we're currently going through um, the plans on expanding that globally so that so soon it will be um, in, an international solution
2: excellent um, Thank you very much. you know uh, throughout the show we've been talking a lot about systems, designing systems um, looking at systems. I know you are a A systems engineer at Boeing. And so I I wanted to talk a little bit more about that term. Um, I am not very familiar with what systems thinking or systems design is. um, And maybe some of our listeners aren't either, but you are an expert. So could you tell us what does it mean to look at a system? Like how do system engineers look at a problem?
3: Uh, So, so yeah, systems engineering really came out of the result of a need for complexity management. So as we got more and more complicated engineered systems, we needed to have someone whose whole purpose was to look at that from a high level and manage the interfaces between the different components and make sure that, you know, we're not missing anything. We're not, we're not dropping the ball on a certain area. Um, and it really came as a result of us not being able to um, just have a single designer sit down and design something like it was before. Um, so that that's really what, what systems engineering came from. It, now, it, it gives you, in learning to become a systems engineer, you understand these principles about how you do that, how you manage top-down management um, in terms of knowing what the design needs to be or knowing what needs need to be met and then that ends up driving what to, what your design ends up being, how you track all those important interfaces all the way through the development process, understand what all the external things that are, you know, um, adding requirements and, and and impacting the way that your your system's going to work. And so it's really just ended up becoming a way to think about these things from a bigger picture. But there's a lot of benefit in looking at complicated systems that aren't only just techno you know, engineered technology Mm -hmm. and and seeing those things from a systems perspective as well. So that's kind of that's kind of the the mindset that I had when I started looking at all this stuff back at Stanford.
2: Interesting. Yeah. So it's really looking at things from a 50,000 feet versus a 10,000 feet. Say That that was actually going to be my next question, which is, can you apply systems thinking to things outside science? Like one example that comes to mind is business. You know, when you say top-down management, I'm thinking about leaders who need to look um, at the very complex functionings of maybe a multinational corporation. Um, Maybe it could be you know applied to government administration. I don't know, it seems like the possibilities yeah. are endless.
3: Yeah, there and there are and there's actually people if you look at the uh the PhD programs at some of these schools that are studying systems engineering, a lot of, a lot of like the the specific research of the students um, are looking at, you know, human systems, social systems, and how you can use similar uh, methodologies to, to look at those. So, so I think, it, you know, from, a, from an engineering discipline standpoint, it's relatively young compared to something like mechanical engineering. So I think you'll see more of that develop as, as the, uh, the subject moves forward. But, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely an interesting tool to think about a lot of these big, big problems.
2: Well, thank you for illuminating that for us. This has been really helpful. Um, we have about two minutes left until we need to take another break, um, but I just wanted to get started on our vision question, which is a question we love to ask to all of our guests. You know, of course, the show is called Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. Um, and so we like to ask our guests um, to describe the future that they're working towards, that they're hoping for. Um, so what about you, Shaw? You know, what would you hope to see happen in the ocean ecosystem and the fishing industry in the next 30 to 50 years?
3: Well, I, I mean, the number one thing I'd like to see is I'd like to See us effectively end illegal fishing. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to see our oceans to be an area where um, where more of it's protected than what's currently protected. So right now we we we're protecting you know, between one and three percent of our oceans. Wow, Whereas, only
2: one and three percent.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and our our land masses are much higher than that, closer to fifteen percent. Um, so so I think that there's a lot of positive progress that's happening with, with countries protecting their lands. Uh, The president of plow very recently stood up in front of the UN and, and declared, um, the entire waters of Palau free from from fishing so there's lots of like really great stuff that you end up seeing and I, I my dream is to see more of that protected and not only protected on paper but effectively protected using the right kinds of observation technologies using the right kinds of information management so that we know for a fact that that area is actually protected and and, and the, the the actual result that would come out of that is we'd have healthier oceans I want our Oceans to be healthy and productive. I want. I don't want to see the extinction of things like the bluefin tuna. You know, and I want my children to be able to scuba dive some of these reefs and see the same kind of beautiful ecosystems that I ended up seeing when I did the same. Thank you.
2: That was a really powerful vision. Thank you for that. Um, You know, believe it or not, it's time for another break. Please stay with us, and we'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with my guest, National Geographic Explorer, Shaw Selby. I'm Rachel Wold. Thank you.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision. Then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum.
0: Again, that's NeboCompany.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to VisionaryLeader at NeboCompany.com. Now, back to today's program.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the final segment of today's Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner, and I'm here with Shaw Selby, Uh, He's a satellite propulsion systems engineer at Boeing. And in his spare time, he's harnessing the power of 21st century technologies and trends such as crowdsourcing and open platform systems to come up with ways to better take care of our world's oceans for future generations. Um, And his efforts are going to affect the fish who live in the oceans and also the people who rely on the oceans for their livelihood and also for their, um, their habitats. So... Um, Shaw, I know that you are involved with engineers without borders. Um, you know, what would you say to a high school or a college student who's interested in affecting this issue? They're interested in the environment or maybe engineering. You know, what kinds of classes or experiences would you recommend that they do to make a difference in those fields in the way that you are?
3: I'm sure. Yeah. They, I- so I do a lot, quite a bit of STEM uh, outreach efforts, and I, I love talking to um, high school and college students, particularly about uh, engineering and the Im- uh, impact that engineering can make. I think a lot of times people out there, they don't realize that you can use engineering to work on these kinds of big problems like ocean conservation. They, they think engineering, and, and, and they imagine you know Dilbert sitting behind <laughs> behind his desk. But, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was an engineer. Uh, engineering is actually a, a pretty remarkable thing. So when students ask me what they can do to uh, to to kind of get more involved in those kinds of things, the first thing I always say is to, to volunteer. I think the single biggest reason I am where I am today is my willingness to work on something without that immediate expectation of something in return. And mm-hmm. I think that you gain so much out of that volunteering process. Um, it also helps you find your what your passion ends up being. Um, And then the second thing I would always tell them is to just start building things, go out there and get your hands dirty, you know, try things out, fail, learn from that. And, um, and, you know, now with this kind of open source and and maker community that we talked about before, there's a lot of resources to do that. Most major cities have these spaces that you can go um, and, and basically use for engineering projects, um, for free or, or a small fee, so it 's a, a pretty great thing
2: interesting what um, if I were to use Google or a search engine, like how would I find some of these spaces? What would I enter
3: I think if you put in uh, makerspace uh-huh. um, that 's probably the easiest way to find uh, something like that, but it 's really any kind of like uh, DIY or open source all those kinds of buzzwords would help you find end up finding um, finding that stuff they, they actually tend to have very uh, large participation online through things like Twitter and their website um so it's it's fairly easy to find something like that in in any major city
2: great, so I would encourage anybody listening to go ahead and do that find a space um you know where you can tinker around, build things. Um, and also uh, what Shah said was volunteer, you know, just for the experience, not necessarily for the resume bullet or, or an expectation of payment. Um, and that will help you find what you're passionate about. Um, Shaw, you mentioned, you know, like go make things fail, like figure it out. Could you give an example of something that you worked on once either, you know, maybe when you were younger or even currently that failed and, and what you learned from that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's almost, it would be almost easier to give you an example of something that didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, the engineering process failure is, is the most important lesson that you can learn in it. Um, you, you learn more from failure than you do from success. So every single thing that I've ever worked on, every single thing that I've ever tried starts with throwing out an idea, seeing if it works. And changing that idea when you find out that it doesn't work,
2: <laughs> so how do you bounce back from failure? you know how How do you figure out what to change or what to do next um, I think I
3: think you just have to understand going into the project that 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 is a very strong possibility and and decide at that point that regardless of the outcome you're going to keep on pushing forward, um, so then you know when you hit that first failure it's going to sting a little bit it's not going to be the most um the best feeling that you've had before but you've already kind of um decided you're going to end up moving forward you're going to end up working through it and each time you go through these and you hit these challenges and and upsets they become easier and it and it just becomes a part of the design process really
2: thank you Um, You know, it's clear that you're very passionate about engineering. What are some of the things that uh, Engineers Without Borders uh, is doing and what are some of the projects that you've done with them in the past?
3: Yeah, so uh, Engineers Without Borders is a great organization. Um, I've been involved with them since 2008. I was involved at USC, um, and then I moved on to the LA professional chapter. Um, and it was there that I, you know, I served as president for a number of years and vice president. I've done a lot of roles there. But the the great thing about the organization is you really get to go and you you partner with the community out in some part of the developing world, and you. You understand what, what they really need. What is the, the main desire um, that you're trying to fix there? Uh, and then you work with that community to design a solution and and implement it. And it's, it's this partnership that lasts over a couple of years. And so they end up being, you know, uh, water, clean water projects, solar projects, sanitation projects, things like that. Um, and I've worked in places like Malawi and Mexico and Thailand and um, Tanzania and Guatemala. And so in the, the, the best, uh, experience, the most recent experience that I had with traveling was we went to Tanzania and we built, um, clean water systems for some schools out there. And, and those two weeks that I spent in Tanzania, um, you know, finding all the parts and putting together the system with the villagers working by my side, they, they were probably the most significant two weeks that I've ever had in my career. I learned more being out there and, 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 learning to build something and deal with the challenges right there, um, while you're on your feet than I would ever behind, behind a computer or, or in a cubicle.
2: So. Wow. Thank you. That sounds, that sounds like an amazing experience. Um, I have just two more questions for you. And one, uh, fun one is what is your favorite thing about studying the ocean ecosystem or just about the ocean in general? It doesn't have to be about work.
3: Uh, My favorite thing about the ocean is that it's, it is literally another world down there. Um, Once you get down there and you're scuba diving and you see some of these, these strange types of animals or, or plants that are down there, you realize that, that life in the ocean is completely different than it is on the ground. And so, um, and and it feels like you're floating around in space or on a, on an alien planet. I I love it.
2: Awesome. That makes me want to drive to the nearest beach and, you know, dip my my toes in the, in the water. Um, so, Shaw, where can people go to follow along with your work and with your progress? Um,
3: so, you can go to my website, which is shawselby.com. Uh, I'm also a pretty avid Twitter user, so uh, my Twitter handle is just shawselby, and, and I, I post a lot of stuff to that. Um, I'm also going to be Uh, putting a lot of this information on the Ocean Views blog on the National Geographic website. So um, there's going to be quite a few posts on uh, technology and how technology can save our oceans.
2: Great. So yes, definitely go check out the Ocean Views blog on the National Geographic website and visit Shaw's personal website. His name is spelled S-H-A-H-S-E-L-B-E, and that's shaslb.com. Uh Well, we've come to the end of our time, but Shaw, I want to thank you for joining me today and for sharing your work with our audience. It's been very uh, inspirational and educational.
3: Thank you. It's been a great conversation.
2: Thanks. This has been Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and my guest, Shaw, Sel- Shaw Selby. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for joining.
1: We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.